Hi, I'm Brad Constantine, and this is a Come Follow Me podcast of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although this is not an official podcast of the church, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. This year's study is the Book of Mormon. Each week, a new summary podcast of that week's Book of Mormon chapters will be released. But if you want a more detailed analysis of each individual chapter, those will also be available to listen to. I hope this Come Follow Me resource will be helpful to you. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast so you'll be notified each week of a new episode. I hope you like this uh, format. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to this Book of Mormon podcast for the Come Follow Me lecture or Come Follow Me curriculum. Uh, this is going to be lesson number 36, and it's going to be for 3rd Nephi chapters 1 through 7, and it covers the period of time from September the 7th through the 13th. As always, um, since these are just summaries, there's also the detailed uh, individual podcast for each chapter of the Book of Mormon that I have on my website. So if you want to go to those for additional information and details, you can certainly get that there. Before I get into this, I want to just read a couple of paragraphs here from uh, some commentaries regarding 3rd Nephi. Since this is a significant section of the Book of Mormon, I want to make sure that we understand what's going on here. Um, the account of the Savior's visit is the climax, the apex of the entire Book of Mormon. All previous Book of Mormon writings had pointed forward to that marvelous event, and all things recorded thereafter remind the reader of that event as a symbol of the Lord's climactic second coming that will yet occur. Some who are not intimately familiar with the contents of the Book of Third Nephi, upon hearing that it consists principally of an ancient or of an account of the Savior's ministry on the American continent, may wonder whether, and if so, how, it is any different from the accounts contained in the four Gospels of the New Testament. Is third Nephi nothing more than a fifth gospel, adding to new insights, but only repetition? As we shall see, third Nephi contains not only an account of the ministry of the resurrected Lord among the group of, of the inhabitants of the new world, but also many additional testimonies of the reality of the resurrection, clarifications of major points of doctrine, and a unique and touching description of the true nature of the immortal Messiah. These contributions not only are supplemental to the four canonical gospels, but also are essential to a true understanding of the total mission of Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Redeemer of the world. While it contains numerous important doctrinal insights, instructions, and clarifications, the unique contributions of 3rd Nephi fall into at least five major categories. One, it testifies of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and serves as a second witness of his divinity. Two, it defines his gospel, clarifies points of doctrine, and teaches the necessity of gospel ordinances. Three, it explains the purpose of the law of Moses and teaches Jesus' divine role in the law's fulfillment. Four, it contains important clarifications concerning the other sheep and doctrinal teachings concerning the gathering of Israel. And five, it provides us with a unique and touching view of the emotional attributes of a glorified God, the resurrected Christ. That was a quote by Millet McConkie in the book, Doctrinal Commentary in the Book of Mormon. So let's go ahead and get into chapter one here. So we, we learned that uh, this is in the year ni the 90 and first year of the reign of the judges. It's also been 600 years from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. And so we would call this AD one. Now it mentions in the second verse that Nephi is the son of Helaman had departed out of the land of Zarahemla and he gave charge unto his son Nephi, who is his eldest son concerning all the plates and the records and so on. And so uh, Nephi, the son of Nephi, the son of Helaman, is now going to be the leader of the church here, and he obtains all the records of the, of the Nephites. 
Uh, also that Nephi in verse 3 it mentions that he departs out of the land and whither he went no man knows. Well we believe that uh, he probably got uh, resur that he got translated. So let's just read a quote here by Millet McConkie. The language describing Nephi's departure is very similar to that of Alma's departure. Hence we assume that the Lord chose to translate him to receive him into a terrestrial state without tasting death. If so, then Nephi, like three others who will follow such a course in 34 years, was given power over death, power over the elements, power to come and go among the children of men as need arose, and power to continue his mortal work in bringing souls unto Christ either on this or some other planet or planets. Interesting, isn't it? Um, let me just read you a couple things here from uh, Joseph Smith about translated beings. He said, The doctrine of translation is a power which belongs to this priesthood. There are many things which belong to the powers of the priesthood and the keys thereof that have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world. They are hid from the wise and prudent to be revealed in the last times. Many have supposed that the doctrine of translation was a doctrine whereby men were taken immediately into the presence of God and into an eternal fullness. But this is a mistaken idea. Their place of habitation is that of the terrestrial order and a place prepared for such characters he held in reserve to be ministering angels unto many planets, and who as yet have not entered into so great a fullness as those who are resurrected from the dead. This distinction is made between the doctrine of the actual resurrection and translation. Translation obtains deliverance from the tortures and sufferings of the body, but their existence will prolong as to the labors and toils of the ministry before they can enter into so great a rest and glory as resurrection. And so a translated being is one who uh, becomes immortal in the sense that they can't die, but, but that they, and they also can't uh, feel pains or, or age anymore. Uh, but that they will they will uh, pass from their terrestrial condition as translated beings into a celestial or resurrected state in the twinkling of an eye, it says. All right, so um, the prophecies of, of uh, Samuel the Lamanite are beginning to be uh, realized. There's... Um, it says in verse 8 that they watched steadfastly for that day and that night and that day that should be as one day as if there were no night. So they're looking forward to that sign. Uh, verse 9 mentions that the unbelievers have set aside a date uh, on which they're going to put to death all those people that believed in the prophecy of Samuel uh, unless the sign is given. And so... Um, the, the, this causes a lot of concern, obviously, for the righteous. And so Nephi uh, pleads in behalf of his people. Uh, verse 12, it says, He cried mightily unto the Lord all that day, and behold, the voice of the Lord came unto him. And so the voice of the Lord is going to come to him and say, uh, Lift up your head and be of good cheer, for behold, the time is at hand, and on this night shall the sign be given, and on the morrow come I into the world. Now this particular verse causes a little bit of a concern because it's uh, sounding like Jesus is speaking to Nephi and yet Jesus is in the body of Mary just about ready to give birth, to be born. Um, and so what does this really mean? We believe that uh, this could have been um, an angel. It could have been the Holy Ghost speaking by divine investiture of authority. Uh, we, Although it has not been revealed uh, exactly when the Spirit enters the body, uh, but it is believed that, uh, at least in Jesus' case here, that the, that the Spirit was already in the body uh, just prior to his birth. And so, um, and so that was probably not Jesus actually speaking to Nephi. Um, I'll just read you a couple quotes here from uh, Millet McConkie. These verses cause us to reflect upon what is yet an unanswered, unrevealed matter, the time when the individual spirit enters the body. 
this is the day before Jesus is to be born of Mary in Bethlehem of Judea, we would assume that by this time the spirit of Jesus is within that infant body, which is housed within the womb of Mary. How then does the voice of Jesus come to Nephi? Does the spirit enter the body at the time of conception, at the time of quickening when the mother first feels signs of life within her, or at the time of physical birth? Can it possibly come and go before the time of birth? We do not know. Such has not been made known to us in the latter days. We do know, however, that the words of God are often spoken through his servants by divine investiture of authority. To Adam the Holy Ghost spoke for and in behalf of the only begotten Son. Such may have been the case here. The Spirit may have been commissioned by the Father to speak to Nephi in the first person for Christ, as though Jesus himself were speaking. Another possibility is that an angel, acting by that same investiture of authority, spoke to Nephi the words of Christ. In any event, whether the Lord's words are spoken by himself or by his authorized servants, it is the same. And so we're not too concerned about who it was, uh, but, but we know it was uh, given proper authority by God for somebody to speak on his behalf if he didn't do it himself. But it mentions in verse 14, I come unto my own to fulfill, to fulfill all things which I have made known unto the children of men from the foundation of the world, to do the will both of the Father and of the Son. And so uh, he's, he's letting, letting Nephi know that uh, the sign is going to be given. Um, and so uh, in verse 15, it came to pass that the words which came unto Nephi were fulfilled according as they had been spoken. For behold, at the going down of the sun, there was no darkness, and the people began to be astonished because there was no darkness when the night came. And so the sign that, that uh, Samuel gave has, been, has come to pass. Uh, those people that had, uh, had planned the death of the believers are now... Uh, a lot of them are now believers, and there's still a group of people that are still so hard-hearted that they still aren't going to believe. Um, verse 19, it came to pass that there was no darkness in all that night, but it was as light as though it was midday. And it came to pass that the sun did rise in the morning again, according to its proper order, and they knew that it was the day that the Lord should be born because of the sign which had been given. And it came to pass that all these things, every whit, according to the words of the prophets, and it came to pass also that a new star did appear according to the word. So we believe that, or at least Hugh Nibley has made the comment that this light was probably a supernova that occurred so that uh, the light would be uh, on the Western Hemisphere uh, during that explosion of the supernova. And then the, the residual or the, the remainings of that would have been the star that would have been uh, apparent or obvious uh, to, show, to show forth later. All right, uh, so uh, let's see. So now we begin to get some Gadianton robbers down in verse 27, 28, uh, in, the 20 in the 90 and 4th year. Uh, they began to increase in a great degree because of the many dissenters of the Nephites. So the, the Gadianton robbers are getting bigger now. Um, the Lamanites were afflicted also because of the decrease to their faith and righteousness because of the wickedness of the rising generation. So we have some of the younger people that are growing up that are not believing in the gospel and they're causing some of the adults to, to waver in their testimonies as well. Uh, verse or Chapter 2. It mentions that wickedness and abominations are going to increase among the people. Uh, however, the Nephites and the Lamanites decide that they need to unite against the Gadianton robbers. Uh, the Gadianton robbers are becoming so numerous uh, that they're able to kill lots of people, but then they, the Nephites and Lamanites band together to decide to, uh, to defend themselves against them. Uh, verse 12 says, all, all the Lamanites who had become converted unto the Lord did unite with their brethren, the Nephites, and were compelled for the safety of their lives and their women and their children to take up arms against those Gadianton robbers. And so now they're, they're doing that. Um, and so the curse of dark skin was also uh, taken away from them. It mentions in um, verse 15, their skin became white like unto the Nephites. 
Now the curse, the dark skin was a sign of the curse. The curse was actually the withdrawal of the Spirit of the Lord. The dark skin is no longer considered a sign of the curse. Many of these converts are delightsome and have the Spirit of the Lord, Joseph Fielding Smith said. All right, chapter 3. Um, so Laconius, who's the governor of the land uh, with the Nephites, uh, receives a, uh, an epistle uh, from the leader of the Gadianton robbers, whose name is um, Gideonhai. So he writes this uh, very complimentary. He calls Laconius most noble and chief governor of the land. I think that was just being uh, using polite words. He probably didn't mean it. Um, but uh, he's, he's telling them to just give up. Let us uh, take over your lands and, and you can become part of our secret band. Uh, in verse 9, I am Gid Gideonhai and I'm the governor of this secret society. I write this epistle unto you. Now behold, this Laconius, the governor, was a just man and could not be frightened by the demands of the, of the threatenings of a robber. So he's not going to believe any of this. And so what they decide to do is um, he, he appoints in verse 17, Laconius appoints chief captains over all the armies of the, of the Nephites. And then he, uh, he decides also that he's going to gather everybody together. Uh, in verse 20, the people said unto Gidgadoni, pray unto the Lord and let us go upon the mountains and destroy the, the Gadianton robbers. And Gidgadoni says that's not the way to do this. That's against the commandments of God. If we are on the offensive, then we can't, we can't uh, expect the promises of the Lord to defend us or to deliver us. So we have to wait until they attack us first. And that's uh, in accordance with the laws of retribution that are found in section 98 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And uh, earlier in the, in the Book of Mormon, it also talks about how the Nephites were not to be the aggressors, but to defend. And so that they get protection from the Lord when they do that. Uh, and so anyway, in 22, uh, verse 22, they, a, a proclamation is sent forth so that they gather up everything and everybody among all the Lamanites and Nephites that would, that would join with them. And so they're going to now gather to the land of Zarahemla and to the land Bountiful and, uh, the land, and near the land Desolation so that they can all gather together. Now this, uh, chapter 4 then, becomes a problem for the Gadianton robbers because their whole uh, economy is based on plunder and robbing. And uh, because the Lamanites and Nephites have gathered together, and uh, it says in verse 4, there was no chance for the robbers to plunder and, and to obtain food. And so they're having a problem. So the Nephites, in verse 4, it mentions that they've gathered up enough uh, food and substance for seven years to defend themselves so that they can live on that for seven years without having to leave. And so the Gadianton robbers are trying to surround them. They try to every once in a while go forth and fight them, and the Nephites are just wiping them out. And uh, they can't uh, they can't win because the uh, the Nephites are just uh, because they're banding together. And the Gadianton robbers their only method of uh, of subsistence is to rob. And so that since they can't do that among the, the Nephites here, uh, they begin to uh, have problems, and they're starting to dwindle and and uh, fall apart. Um, but what happens here is that the Nephites then destroy or uh, take as prisoners all the Gadianton robbers. And uh, it mentions down in verse 27, uh, there were many thousands who did yield themselves up prisoners unto the Nephites, and the remainder of them were slain. And their leader, Zemnariahah, was taken and hanged upon a tree, even upon the top thereof, until he was dead. And when they had hanged him until he was dead, they did fell the tree to the earth and did cry with a loud voice, saying, uh, and so then they, they quote this thing here, what they're saying together. Um, but you wonder why um, why cut the tree down uh, that, also, that the guy was hanged upon? Uh, there is some ancient uh, traditions about that. Uh, so let me just read you a couple things here. Um, 
the account uh, recounts in considerable detail the execution of Zemnariah, the captured leader of the defeated Gadiant robbers. It has recently been suggested that this public execution followed ancient ceremony and law. After the Nephites had chopped down the tree on which Zemnariah had been hanged, they all cried out with one voice for God to protect them. Several evidences point to an ancient background for this execution. Consider these few items. First, notice that the tree on which Zemnariah was hung was felled. Was this ever done in antiquity? Apparently it was. For one thing, Israelite practice required that the tree upon which the culprit was hanged be buried with the body. Hence, the tree had to have been chopped down. Second, consider why the tree was chopped down and buried. Uh, as one rabbi said, in order that it should not serve as a sad reminder with people saying, this is the tree on which so-and-so was hanged. So then if that uh, tree isn't there, then they don't have that to say. And so that's a significant uh, thing. So you can see, again, ancient custom here, uh, Hebrew custom that's going on that Joseph Smith would not have known. So this is therefore, again, testifying that this is translated material. Third Nephi chapter 5, uh, so the Nephites, after they've destroyed most of the, or all of the Gadianton robbers, and those that entered into a covenant uh, were given land and, and able to grow stuff, and those that weren't were killed, so that the Gadianton robbers have been, again, taken out of the land. In chapter 5, uh, now the Nephites are beginning to repent, and uh, there's great prosperity. They have uh, great peace that's going on, and this lasts for quite a while. Now, in chapter 5, there's a break in the action where Mormon is explaining here about the plates um, and, that, and that the plates were were, um, were kept. In verse 9, behold, there are, there are records which do contain all the proceedings of this people, and a shorter but true account was given by Nephi. Now, this is the Nephi that's the son of Nephi, the son of Helaman that he's talking about here, not the prior Nephi back in First and Second Nephi. Mormon continues in verse 10, I make a record, I made a record of these things according to the record of Nephi, which was engraven on the plates, which were called the plates of Nephi. So this is the record that Mormon is using in his, in his book. Uh, behold, I make a record on the plates, which I have made with mine own hands, and behold, I am Mormon, he says in verse 12. Um, and so he mentions in verse 13, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that's uh, also meaning that he's also an apostle. Uh, the word disciple here is interchanged with apostle. Uh, verse 20, I am Mormon, a pure descendant of Lehi. I've, I have reason to bless my God and my Savior, Jesus Christ, that he brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem. So even, even Mormon can, can glory in, the God, in God, even though he's going through some very difficult times there toward the end of his life, knowing that uh, his people are being destroyed, yet he can, he can glory in God that he's going to be okay. All right, chapter 6, and uh, verse Four, as they begin again to prosper and to wax great, the 20th and 6th and 7th years pass away, and they formed their laws according to equity and justice. And there was nothing at all to hinder the people from prospering. Uh, but then in verse 10, it mentions again, there began to be some disputings among the people. So here we go again. Only three years had passed away, and they'd been in peace, and now there's going to be some disputations. Uh, some were lifted up unto pride and boastings because of their exceedingly great riches, yea, even unto great persecution. So here we go again. Uh, their wickedness begins. Verse 13, some were lifted up unto pride, but others were exceedingly humble. Uh, so while some some received railing and persecution and all manner of afflictions and would not turn again and revile again, but were humble and penitent. So there's, there's a lot of good righteous people here uh, with uh, mingling with those that are wicked and starting to, to gain more wickedness. Um, 
verse 20, there began to be men inspired sent forth. So there's prophets that are sent forth to teach them again that they're going off the track and that they need to get back. And anytime that people stray from the ways of God, there's always prophets that are sent to, uh, to help to bring them back. And that's how the Holy Ghost works in our lives, too, that as we begin to be tempted and to stray, then the Holy Ghost is going to be there tempted to, uh, to bring us back to where we belong. Okay, chapter 7. Um, they don't, uh, there's no success in bringing about a king, um, but the people are divided and they begin to uh, they begin to break up into tribes in verse 2 and they completely destroy the government of this land. We need to keep in mind too that the that this part of the Book of Mormon here may be also prophetic about what's going to happen in the last days prior to the second coming. We know that um, a lot of the, the, even our country will have problems before the second coming. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're vigilant with uh, with the Constitution um, and sustaining it. Uh, let me just read you a couple of things here. This is by Ezra Taft Benson. Whatever may be our fate, be assured that this Constitution will stand. We face difficult days in this beloved land. It may cost us blood before we are through. It is my conviction, however, that when the Lord comes, the stars and stripes will be floating on the breeze over this people. That's a comforting thing. Will the Constitution be destroyed? No, it will be held inviolate by this people, and as Joseph Smith said, the time will come when the destiny of the nation will hang upon a single thread. At that critical juncture, this people will step forth and save it from the threatened destruction. It will be so. Remember that Elder Packer once said that the best way to, to uh, uphold the Constitution is for families to teach their children about it. Um, uh, Brigham Young said, or President Benson again said, it is my conviction that the elders of Israel, widely spread over the nation, will at that, at that crucial time successfully rally the righteous of our country and provide the necessary balance of strength to save the institution of constitutional government. I hope that that's the case. Harold B. Lee said, I plead with you not to preach pessimism. It is the nation that will stand despite, whether, despite whatever trials or crises it may have yet to pass through. So the, the country is going to last. It may be individuals that have problems. So then in, in uh, continuing in chapter 7 then, the Nephi or the Lamanites then, uh, they have a king. His name is Jacob. And uh, he's setting himself up in a kingdom. And in the 30 and first year, they divided it into tribes, every man according to his family. But there's peace in the land as much as possible. They don't uh, fight between the tribes. So they're doing okay in that, in that regard. Um, but... Uh, but there's still some wickedness that's coming up and, and uh, the, those in the church are trying to be as righteous as they can. Um, but uh, they're having problems here as the, as the government's been overthrown. So in verse uh, 15, it mentions that Nephi, having been visited by angels and also the voice of the Lord, therefore having seen angels and being eyewitness and having had power given unto him that he might know concerning the mystery of Christ, ministry of Christ, and also being eyewitness to their quick return from righteousness unto their wickedness and abominations, therefore being grieved for their hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, went forth among them in that same year and began to testify boldly. So Nephi now is going among the people to preach the gospel to get them to repent so that they don't uh, continue in their wickedness. Uh, in verse 18, they were angry with him because he had greater power than they, for it were not possible that they could not that they could disbelieve his words for so great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ that angels did minister unto him daily wouldn't that be nice if uh, we as missionaries could be so convincing in our in our approach to uh, non-members that they could not disbelieve us uh, verse 19 uh, in the name of Jesus he did cast out devils and unclean spirits uh, he raised people from the dead 
Uh, he did lots of miracles in their sight so that uh, this was a, a concern for the people and that because they didn't want all this. But yet Nephi is going forth uh, with great power. At the end of the chapter here, it mentions that there were many that were baptized into repentance and thus the more part of the year did pass away. And so there's lots of people that are joining the church because of Nephi. Uh, but there's also others on the other side that are being wicked. And so this is the condition that they're in. Uh, as we get into the end of this chapter, I bear testimony that these things are true. And as we study the, these words, that we might better understand what's going to happen in our day so that we can be prepared for that when it happens and, and know what we need to do to uh, be ready. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next week.